0: Welcome to Grace. This morning, we're glad that you're here. Uh, this morning, we we're starting a brand new series called Man Up, all right? And uh, I was, um, well, really, the last three weeks, we've been talking about Ruth, right? The story of Ruth in the Old Testament, which is a per- great, just so, such a great example of what biblical womanhood looks like. And so we've been going through that story, but now what we're going to do is we're going to shift focus, and we're going to look up, or we're going to look at what biblical manhood looks like. And really, the question we're going to be asking ourselves is, what does it look like to be a man, all right? Like, what is a man? It's funny. Uh, just a few days ago, I had some ladies coming up to me, and they, they asked me, you know, so what are we going to be talking about uh, for, this, uh, for this next series? You know, what are we going to be talking about in church on Sunday? And I'm like, well, actually, ironically, we're starting a series called Man Up, and it's about, it's about men and, uh, and manhood, which, by the way, I think is going to be good for both men and women, all right? It's in the Bible. It's for both of us. Uh, but, um but they're just like, oh, well, hey, if you need anything, you just let us know. Like, we got some opinions on that, on what it means to be a man. And I'm like, you know, and they're like joking around and stuff. But uh, but these days, I mean, it's true. These days, women have a stronger opinion on what it means to be a man than men do. Okay? I don't think that's good necessarily, a good look for, for men. Right? And, and to be honest, right, like... Uh, And and they were completely joking, but to be honest, when I'm looking at what it means to be a man, I'm not going to go to a woman, right? Actually, we're not going to go to a man either. We're going to look at God's perspective, and we're going to go to God, and we're going to look how God has designed us for the next three weeks. We're going to look at what God um, desires all right, for men to look like, for men to act like, what we are supposed to, as, as men, how we're supposed to lead and, and do all the things that we're supposed to do. Uh, but, uh, but right now, we live in a society, we live in a culture that is constantly attacking the idea of uh, what biblical manhood looks like. I mean, constantly, right? It, it, it never stops. We live in a culture that tells men to act more like women and tells women to act more like men, right? Let me just start off right off the bat, right? We get that God made men and women different, right? Okay, six of us get that. The rest of you guys, the rest of you guys need to go look at a diagram or something, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but God made men and women different. Now, we have complete equal worth, God has really laid on us equal value. We see that in, right at the beginning, right? God, he, he, um, he made both man and woman in his image, right? But he made us different, right? We have different roles. We're good at different things, all right? We complement each other. That's how God has made us. And it's not like a mistake, all right? One's not better than the other. But society wants to blend the two, and the society wants to make us the same. But we're different. Right, not just physically, right? But we value things different, right? We think differently. We view things differently. I don't think, that for me, I mean, obviously I knew this as a kid and, you know, all that stuff, but uh, but it didn't, like, hit me hard, right, until I got married, okay? You start noticing some differences. Um, one of the first things that, that kind of popped up in our marriage is uh, me and Kate, we view... Uh, this is going to sound weird. Well, like personal hygiene. Yeah, it does sound weird. Personal hygiene a little differently. And I'm not meaning one's gross and one's not. All right, we're both clean people, I think. I'm a clean person, I think. But, uh, but it's like products. You know what I mean? Kate, I didn't know when I married her that I was also marrying a lot of products, okay? I didn't know I was going to need a bunch of space for those products. Like, like for me, I'm a, I'm a dude, right? And so I'm thinking, well, you need your like, soap, and it could just be cheap soap, and your shampoo, and that's just Walmart shampoo, and, um, you know, deodorant, and maybe sometimes toothpaste, but that's like it. You don't need anything else, okay? Uh, But uh, for for Kate, it was like completely different. It was like, no, you need shampoo, and you need conditioner. By the way, I don't even know what conditioner does. I know it conditions the hair. I just don't know what that means. My hair's never been conditioned, I guess. Um, But uh, you need shampoo and conditioner. It can't just be like straight out of Walmart. It's got to be like this... Certain kind, and it happens to be a very expensive kind, you know. That's where that's how I first found out. I'm like, spend spend what on shampoo? Seven dollars at Walmart. Come on, anyway. So, uh, but it's not just that, right? You got like your face washes, you got your stuff for your skin, you got got makeup. I didn't know that people put makeup on their eyelashes, I didn't know that was a thing. I don't know what that's called, I forget. But uh, same thing with your eyelids. Okay, your eyes are open. I don't think you can even see it. I don't know. But uh, you got makeup on your face. You got makeup on your lips. You got all, and they have to be a certain brand. They have to be a certain color. You got to have all these other different colors to match whatever. You know, it's just all this stuff that I was like unaware of as a dude coming into marriage. All right, it's just, it's just crazy to me. And then you got lotions. You got, yeah, all this stuff. You know, I'm just like, I'm just like, what? We value things differently. She values that stuff. I place no value on that stuff. All right, we're just different. And that's okay. All right, we parent differently. Um, when one of my boys are running and they fall down on the sidewalk, they scrape their knee, you know, Kate, you know what she does? She goes up to them and she like, she's like, oh, it's okay, because they're crying. And, you know, she's like, oh, okay, she picks them up. She's, you know, patting them. You know, she'll kiss the knee and, you know, do all this comforting motherly stuff, right, which is good, you know. But for me, that I'm, I'm just now wired to do that, right? When like my kid, when one of my boys uh, falls and scrapes his knee, you know, I'm like, Boy, get up! You know, like it hurts. It's okay. Like you need to be tough. I'm not raising no pansies. You know, at least I don't want to. Uh, but uh, but that's just how I'm wired. We're different. You know, we're different. And that's that's okay. This past Tuesday, uh, you know, we got the big snowstorm. You guys all survived that? Good. Okay. I guess you guys had to have since you're all here. Uh, but uh, but you know, we get a foot of snow and. And we, we're looking out the window, and for Kate, she's just like, "Well, you can't go into work today, you know. It's, oh, we got a foot of snow out there. You know, it's not safe." And and she's doing this from a, you know, she's loving on me, or doing this from a loving attitude, loving heart, she's like, you need to stay here, you know, you need to get some stuff, you know, just work from home today, and I got three kids, there ain't no work happening if I stayed at home from work, but for me, I'm just like, no, it's like, time to go into work, I gotta, it's a little annoying today, because now I gotta dig out my car before I, before I go, but I still gotta go into work, like, it just, you know, and part of me, for me, as a guy, it, like, her just saying that, like, it's not safe, you, you know, what if something happens, and stuff like that, you know, part of me is, like, a little bothered by that. It's like, what are you saying? Like, I'm not man enough to get to work. You know, I'm in a car. I'm going 16 miles. Like, like you're, you know, you think that I might die or, you know, what's, what's the deal? You know, it's like, I'm an Ohioan. I'm a man of the north. Snow doesn't stop guys like, you know, guys like us. So um, that's just, you know, we think differently, right? God made us different. And if you remember, when God first made us man and woman, remember what he said when he looked at us right after he had done everything? He looked at us, and he looked at the differences between man and woman, and he looked down, and he said, that is good to both of them. He said, that is good. See, he made us different, and he made us different on purpose, and we in the church, right, we need to recognize this, because historically, the church has been really great, like this is just historically, the church has been really great at attracting women, but has failed miserably at attracting men to Jesus. And that's why there's a lot of people, a lot of men in our culture that view church as a place for women and children. That's why statistically, men are much less likely to go to church than women. They're less likely to pray. They're less likely to read their Bibles. They're less likely to to take their faith or their relationship with Jesus seriously. I mean, statistically, men are way less less into church or way less into, into their relationship with Jesus than women. See, and part of me understands why. Like, look what we have done to Christianity. Like, look what we have done to Jesus. Right? right, we've made Jesus so feminine, all Right? And I'm not saying that in a, in like saying being feminine is wrong by any means. I'm saying for a man to be feminine, it's not how God created us, all right? We've made Jesus feminine. I was uh, just this past, uh, just a couple days ago, I was at a Catholic mass, all right, for a funeral. And, um, and I'm looking at like the stained glass windows you know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys maybe got a lot of ex-Catholics in here, and um, and I'm looking at like their pictures of Jesus. He looks like a girl, All right? This is, this is what pops out to me As I'm getting in, You know, maybe I was just thinking about this this you know a lot more this week, but I'm just looking. I'm like, who's this girl? You know, holding the lamb. What's she doing? You know, it's uh we make Jesus look like a girl. He's got this long flowing hair, he's been using Kate's conditioner a lot, you know, he's been using her her lotion. Oh sorry, Blaine, I forgot about you. You got manly long flowing hair, okay? Anyway, he's like, what? It's like, oh, but, uh, but, you know, he's, he's got good skin, you know, he's got, you know, he's, um, what well, now you got me all messed up. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of those pictures. He's wearing like a robe and a dress. If you ever wear a robe and a dress, you're out of here, okay? Um, but, uh, but it, you know, he's clean, his hands are always like this in the, in the stained glass, and the pictures, and, and we view him as a, as a meek little man, and we view him as someone who is always gentle, That's how we view Jesus. That's not even close to who Jesus was. It's not even close to an accurate description of Jesus. We look over the fact that Jesus was bold. Jesus was blunt. He was so blunt, and he told it how it was so often that people wanted to kill him. He didn't hold back. He got... Ticked off at times. One time he was so mad that guys in the t- had moved into the temple, moved their little shops in the temple, were making money off people coming to worship God, that he, he puts together this whip, this cord of, like, like this whip, and, uh, and he, he goes and he starts whipping the people and the animals out of the temple. All right? He drives them out with it. All right? A violent thing. Because he was so mad at them. Right? He was a hard worker. He worked with his hands. We know that he was a um, he, he worked with you know he worked with wood uh, with, with his dad. He, he sweated. He was a man who didn't shy away from pain. right He willingly took nails hammered into his hands, n- hammered it into his feet for us. I mean he's the perfect example of what manhood should look like because Jesus, by the way, was fully God, but he was also fully man. And God has shown us what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like in the Bible. And so this morning, what I want to do just real quick is uh, I want to look at some examples that God has given us of what a man should look like or what men, we as men in this room, what men of the church, what we should, uh, should look like. And, and the Bible describes these guys that we're going to be looking at as mighty men, right? Not mighty boys, not mighty people, mighty men. right, and so let me give you some background about what was going on at this time. Uh, We'll start all the way back at the Exodus, okay, where a lot of people can kind of, oh, okay, I remember that story. But the nation of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, After 400 years, they're crying out to God, and God sends this guy named Moses, all right, to go lead them out of Israel. And so he does that, and a whole bunch of stuff happens. It's a really cool story, and uh, and. The, uh, Moses leads the people to the promised land, but then they have some hiccups along the way. Moses ends up dying, and uh, a young man, well, actually, at this point, he was an old man. An old man named Joshua right leads the people of Israel into the land. They conquer about 90% of the land. They do about 90% of what God had told them to do, which is gonna cause them a whole bunch of issues down the line, and, uh, and they, they settle. And Joshua ends up dying, and when Joshua ends, ends up dying, there's no leader to kind of take his place. And the nation of Israel, the Bible says this is one of the saddest phrases in the entire Bible. We see this throughout the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And the, everyone, the Bible says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Very, very, very similar to what's going on today. Well, this period for the next 300 years or so uh, was called, is what we call, we just have a label for it, called the Judges period. And it's a terrible, terrible time in Israel's history. Very, 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 very dark days. And because Israel's in this cycle. They're stuck in their cycle where they would reject God. God would remove his protection from them. They would get defeated by some uh, neighboring nation. And when things got so bad and when enough people had had died, people, they would start crying, you know, running back to God, crying out to God saying, hey, save us, save us, save us. And so what God would do is he would raise up a judge or basically what we would call a leader. Some, Some guy or woman would stand up and they would would rescue, right, the nation of Israel, usually lead the nation of Israel, and uh, they, would, they would defeat their enemies, and, and the nation of Israel would turn back to, to worshiping God at least for a while. But then after some time would pass, they would go right back to rejecting God, right back to doing whatever they thought, you know, was right in their own eyes. God would remove his protection. Another nation would come in. I mean, this happened over and over and over and over again. This happened so often throughout this, throughout these 300 years, and uh, they start looking, all right, at all the nations around them, and they realize that everybody else has a king, okay? By the way, in that period, at the tail end of that period is right where the story of Ruth is that we've been talking about for the last three weeks, just to kind of connect the dots. But they start looking around, they're like, okay, all these other nations, they have kings. We don't have a king, all right? Things have not been going well for the last few hundred years, and uh, really how God just set this, the nation of Israel up, how they were supposed to be governed, is God was supposed to be their king. He had given them the law. They were supposed to obey the law, and if they would have done that, everything would have been good. You just worship God. You obey you know, God's commands. You do what God tells you to do, and God protects you, and you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to fight. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. You just live a good life. That's how it was supposed to be, but they kept falling away from God. They kept choosing to reject God, and so you know, they're looking around. They're noticing that everybody else has these kings, and uh, they come to the last judge that we have after the 300 years, and they go to Samuel. His name's Samuel, and they're like, hey, Samuel, give us a king to rule over us. And so Samuel goes to God. God's like, this isn't the way that I want it for these people, and so God tells Samuel, hey, go tell the people that if they do this, there's gonna be some consequences that just come along with having a king. He's like, they're gonna take your son's and they're gonna put them in their army, and they're gonna take your sons, they're gonna make them care for their farmland. He's gonna take your sons, he's gonna make them produce his weapons, they're gonna take your daughters, uh, they're gonna to, to, to work for him, he's gonna tax you. Right then I would have been like, shh, I'm out, all right? I'm done with taxes. I hate taxes. Don't get me started on taxes. I feel like I pay, we all pay a lot of taxes. Anyway, moving on. Um, and so after he tells, after Samuel tells this to the people, the people are just like, oh, we didn't think about all that. There, are some, there is like baggage that comes with the king. And they're like, hmm, okay, we'll still do it, you know. And so God goes and they reject God. They beg for a king. And so God gives them a king. God picks out this man named Saul as the, ne- as the first king of Israel. And Saul happens to be the most handsome man in the land. He happens to be the tallest man in the land. The Bible says that his, he stood a head taller than really everybody else. And this is really, it's a good young guy. Okay, he has it going on, he's, he's, uh, he's, he follows God, he, you know, he's brave and he leads them into battle and he rescues Israel and Israel becomes their own independent nation again and things start off great. But then you read through the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, it's like you start reading about Saul and it's, it's just so sad because he just does stupid stuff, like a lot of us men, you know, we're just like, Why? <laughs> He just he would just obey you know he just disobeyed God and you're just like you know why would you do that that makes that's such a petty little thing completely disobeying God and to the point where God ends up rejecting Saul as king and God goes and he picks another king and he happens to pick this young shepherd kid named David who's only like 14 years old at this point okay so he sends Samuel Samuel goes and anoints uh, this David kid as uh, as the future king of Israel And they keep it all a secret Because if Saul found out He would definitely try to kill David Well, let's fast forward a couple years David's around 16 years old Israel is at war with another neighboring uh, people And these people are called the Philistines And Saul has his army They're up on one hill And there's this valley And then up on another hill You got the Philistine army And they're, they're facing off between the two The Philistine army has this huge man Named Goliath, okay And he's there And he comes out every single morning. He's like, why do we all have to fight? Why do we have to have all this bloodshed? You just send your best warrior to come fight me. And whoever wins, that nation will serve. Or whoever wins, the other nation will serve that nation. You know, whatever. Um, And uh, we can avoid all the fighting. And they will be our servants. You you know, you get what I'm saying. Anyway. Um, And so... And so he does this every morning. And, and, and no man of Israel wants to fight this guy. King Saul doesn't want to fight him. None of his warriors want to fight him. Everybody's like, "Uh." Eh. So he comes out and he taunts not only King Saul, but he taunts the whole nation of Israel and he taunts God. Well, it just so happens that one morning, little 16-year-old David is coming by with lunch for his brothers who are in the army, in Saul's army. And uh, he happens over here, this Goliath man, just like taunting God. And he's like, why is it somebody just go kill that guy? And everybody's like, you see, you see that guy? No one's, you know, who, who could do that? And David's like, well, I'll do it. You know, 16-year-old kid. And he goes, you know the story. He goes and grabs a, he has a sling and he's grabbed some stones and he starts running towards Goliath. He happens to, you know, he slings this thing as fast as he, you know, as hard as he can. The stone hits Goliath right in the forehead, knocks him out cold. David runs up, he grabs Goliath's sword and he chops off his head, which had to have been Sweet. And then right after that, the Philistines, they're just like, whoa, that kid just took out Goliath, our champion, undefeated, never been beaten before. And they take off. Israel starts, the armies of Israel start running after him. And uh, and God saves Israel through David's bravery. Well, when this happens, right, David's like an instant celebrity. Like it doesn't take long for word to travel throughout the land that this kid killed Goliath, the giant champion. Okay, and they even have songs that were women, the young women would sing songs when they would ride in through through towns and stuff. They would say, hey, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And when King Saul hears this immediately, he is so jealous. I mean, from that day on, he hates David with everything that he has because David is more popular than him. Right? And he doesn't even know that, that David is the one who got picked to take over his job yet. Right? This is before that. And so Saul, he tries to kill David on several occasions. The last time, well, one of the last times, he, he chucks this spear at David as fast, you know, as hard as he can. And it sticks into the wall right behind David. And David, he, he, he decides, you know, it's time for me to run. I got to get out of here because this guy is going to kill me. And he makes his way to this little cave in the middle of Israel And uh, it's, gonna, it's called the cave of Adullam So David left Gath That's actually a Philistine city And he took refuge in the cave of Adullam It says when David's brothers and fathers You know, whole family heard They went down and joined him there So you got David, he's like At this point he's like 18 to 20 years old Alright he, uh, he knows he's going to be the future king Or he knows that that's what God promised him But nothing's going right like, this isn't what he thought was going to happen. Here, he's, he's an outlaw. He's a fugitive in his own country, right? And, uh, and the, King Saul wants to kill him. King Saul wants him dead. He hasn't done anything wrong. And here he is hiding out in a cave all by himself. Think he was questioning God? Like, God, when I was a 14-year-old kid, you promised me this, but what's going on here? Why am I stuck in, you know, why am I hiding out in this cave? I could die any day. If anybody sees me, they they could kill me. And his family hears about where he's at. And so they go and they they go to be with him like, hey, we'll we'll follow you, David. And, And then not only his family, but check this out. It says, in addition, every man who is desperate in debt or discontented rallied around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Right, now, reading through this, we see that, that uh, or studying this out, it's really, I mean, these people that came with them, these are like the outcasts of society. Right, these, are the, these are nobodies. Nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to, to own these, you know, to, to control these people. These people were, they, you know, they weren't good people. They were outcasts, they were fugitives, they were outlaws. And these guys, 400 of them from throughout the land, they come and they rally behind David and they, and they, they have this little garrison that they build at this, that they build at this cave. And that's kind of their thing and, uh, and not the type of people that a future king would ever want to be around or ever want to be associated with. So David and his band of merry men, right, his, his band of outlaws, they spend the next few years, almost like the next 10 years, fighting and running from King Saul, who's trying to kill him the whole time. Well, eventually Saul dies. He dies in battle with the Philistines, and David becomes the next king, and uh, he he rules, David rules a pretty good life. Just to fast forward through David's life real quick. Uh, he, he's got a life full of problems and trouble. All right? Way worse than what most of us have experienced. Uh, he's very similar to all of us. David messes up. He has big issues. And, and, uh, and, and at the end of his life, um, we see that he always, throughout his life, he had this group of loyal men at his side, and the author of 2 Samuel give us a glimpse of just a few of these guys. And Second uh, Samuel is written at the end of David's life, and it's looking back on his on his best men, All right? The guys who were with him through like the thick and thin, All right? These were the guys who were with him in the hard times, and the guys who were with him in the easy times. The guys who lived with him in caves, and the guys who lived with him in palaces. And out of the hundreds of thousands of valiant warriors that David has, he has this group of top men, and they actually have a name, and they're called, David called them the 30, okay? And uh, there's actually around 37 of them that are kind of associated with this group. And these guys have the reputation, I mean, these guys are like the Delta Force, okay? They're the Green Berets of David's army. These guys are the heroes. And within these 37 guys, there's a, a second class, or really the first class of individuals that were the best of the best, and their name was, they, they had a name too, and their name was The Three. They were super creative on creating these names, okay? The Thirty, The Three. But these, these three are the top men in the nation, okay, in the whole country. And the author introduces us to them, the author of Second Samuel introduces us to them in Second Samuel chapter 23, it says this, uh, these are the names of David's warriors, Joshua Beshebeth, uh, the Tachmanite was chief of the officers. Okay, so this is like guy number one, top guy in all the land. He says he wielded a spear against 800 men that he killed at one time. All right, just a side little note, he actually killed 800 men at one time, all right, in one battle. All right, have you ever just read something in the Bible and just like, just thought to yourself, you're like, what did that look like? You know what I mean? Like this. I can't even imagine because none of us have even come close to being in a situation like this. But 800 guys at one time, you would think, like in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if I was number 800 and there's 799 bodies of my, fam- of my friends and countrymen, you know, just kind of lying around and you got this one guy and he's, coming, he's walking to me, you know, I'm probably like, yeah, I'm out, right? I'm going to go home now. You, you know, but that apparently didn't happen. <laughs> but, uh, but here's this guy, he kills, he, what he's known for, he's known for being a man and he's known for killing these 800 guys at one time in, in like one battle. Now we don't know if this battle was, you know, a few hours long or maybe it was two days long, we don't, God doesn't tell us. But, uh, but this guy was known for being brave and he was known for his courage. I mean, this dude's a warrior, okay, there's no doubt about that. This next guy, let's look at him. He says, After him, Eleazar, son of Dodo, and part of me thinks that maybe he had to overcompensate for his dad's name um, with some of the stuff that he does. But uh, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of the Ahoite, was among the three warriors with David when they defied the Philistines. Now, in First Chronicles, I think it's First Chronicles 11. I should have checked with that in between services but uh, we have some of these same accounts written for us, and there's a few details that Chronicles adds that isn't in 2 Samuel, but, um, but here it tells of this, of this story where it's David and this guy named Eleazar, and uh, when they, they're in this field, and they defy the Philistines. Now, this word for defied it really should be translated as something closer to like taunted, Okay. And so the Israel army, they're going, against up, they're going up against the Philistine army. And this is just at some point during, their, during David's life. And the Israel army leaves. Like, they retreat. They're out of there. Okay, they're getting beat or something. You know, they, they run away. But Eleazar and David stand their ground. And it's almost like they taunt the Philistines. It's like they're like, let's go. All right, you ready? There's a bunch of you. There's two of us. We're not afraid. We're going to go. It says this, or... The men of Israel, they retreated in the place that they had gathered for battle. Uh, but Eleazar, he stood his ground. And we know in Chronicles that David's with them. And he, they attacked the Philistines until uh, Eleazar's hand was so tired that it stuck to his sword. So this guy has been holding his sword so tightly, and he's been swinging it so much that his, he's got like, his muscles are cramping up, right? His hand stuck to the sword. He's got blood all over his hand, right? It's sticking to the sword. And because of that, he is known for this big feat, and everybody knows him, and his reputation reflects this, and it says, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then the troops, they came back to him, and David, but only to plunder the dead. Like, yeah, Israel's army showed up eventually. They came back eventually, but when they came back, there was nobody else there. The enemy, had, they're, they're out of there. They only went to go, pick, go plunder the dead. Right? There's this same kind of situation that happens with the third guy of the three. He says, after him was Shammah, son of uh, Agi the Herorite. The Philistines had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. Now, I didn't know what lentils were, <laughs> Right. Um, I thought I was like, man, those are probably like giant thorns or something crazy that you know they had to fight through. And then I looked up, I was like, oh, it's just like food, plant. Some of you guys eat lentils. I didn't. I don't eat lentils. I eat meat. But uh, anyway, um, lentils are popular, I guess. Uh, it says the troops fled from the Philistines like normal. So Israel's troops, they take off. They're scared. But Shammah, he took his stand in the middle of the field and he defended it and struck down the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. All right, so here's the Bible. Here's God trying to show us something here, all right? Here you got these guys, all right, standing in the ground. They got, they're courageous, they're brave. They're protecting those that they love. They're standing up for what's right. And be, through their bravery and their courage, God brings about a great victory, right? Like God implements his plan. See, all three of these guys, they're known for being loyal warriors. They're known for being men. Brave, courageous, not backing down from a fight, not backing down from what's right. See, today we got such a, we got such a skewed view of courage and bravery. I mean, today all you have to do to, to have courage is post something controversial on your Facebook page. It's like, wow, you're so courageous. I can't believe you clicked that button. You know, or type that up. These guys risked their lives. They stood up for what's right. They protected their families. The author gives us just a quick story, actually. It's the only story in the Old Testament that I know of that, uh, that has all three guys in it. And it's all the way we see it all the way back when David is hiding in a cave, um, back the, when he's 18 to 20 years old. And when the 400 outcasts come, right, who are these guys, by the way, we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It says, Three of the 30 leading warriors, they went down at harvest time and they came to David at the cave of Adullam. All right, so we're already acquainted with that. We already know what's going on there. He says, You know, David, he's young. He's got these outcasts with him. He says, While a company of Philistines, they were camping at the Rephim Valley. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, okay? So David was extremely thirsty and he said, man, if only someone would bring me a drink of water to drink from, or, yeah, bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. All right, it's, uh, it, let me paint the picture for you. You got, you got the cave of Adullam, all right? And, and David has his little, uh, like little fortress that he's kind of built there. He's got these 400 outcasts that are following him. There's this valley where you got a bunch of Philistines. They're all camping out. They've raided Israel. They own Israel. Israel's not doing anything about it. And then on 12 miles away from, from this cave, you got Bethlehem, okay? Bethlehem was the city, what we call the city of David. That's where he grew up. By the way, that's where the story of Ruth left off. Ruth and Boaz was David's great-grandparents in Bethlehem. And so that's where, that's where David's from. So what David's doing here is he's just thinking to himself, he's thinking out loud, right? They're stuck, they're surrounded in this, in their little fortress, in their little garrison, and he's just like, man, I could really go for some of that ice, cold water that I grew up on, you know, from that well outside, outside of Bethlehem. Man, I, you know, man, if I could have a cup of that, that'd be so great. He says it out loud. It'd be like me, like I'm from Green Springs, Okay, I'm not like super proud of being from Green Springs. Okay, I don't got a bunch of Green Springs pride in me. I got zero, really. Um, but uh, one thing that I, that I do like about Green Springs is Papa Jimmy's. It's a restaurant. Any you guys heard of Papa Jimmy's? Okay, all right. Love Papa Jimmy's. It's my favorite, you know, it's my favorite restaurant that I got. And I've liked it before I, before I moved uh, to Green Springs. I was there the first week that they opened back, I think it was like 2004, me and my buddies in high school, we went there and um, we went there like five times the first week that they were open. And so really, I credit myself for them um, existing so long because I've spent a lot of money there. Uh, But uh, anyway, so it'd be like for me, up here, I'm standing on stage, I'm getting a little hungry, okay? Uh, It's getting close to lunchtime. And it'd be like me just saying, man, I could really go for a Papa Jimmy's pizza, (laughs) All right, and, and, and then one of you guys gets up and you drive all the way to Green Springs, you grab a pizza and you drive back and you have it ready by the end of the service. By the way, if you do that, I won't say no. Okay, and you just throw that out there. I mean, it's just saying it out loud. That's what, that's what David's doing here. He's like, man, if only I could have some water. And these three guys, they're just like, hey, do you hear that? He's really thirsty. What he wants is some water from the, from the well in Bethlehem. It says this, It says, so three of the warriors, they broke through the Philistine camp, and they drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. It says, they brought it back to David, but David, he refused to drink it, which would really tick me off. Like, dude, we went all the way there. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. It says, David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. Is this not the blood of the men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it, and such were the exploits of the three warriors. All right, so these guys leave the garrison, which is unsafe, where the, the cave, where, where David and his men are. They go and they fight through all the Philistines that are camped out in the valley. They, dr- they run 12 miles away to Bethlehem. They fight through the garrison of Bethlehem. One of them has like a pail or something. He's like getting the, you know, getting the water out of the, out of the well, you know, like, hurry up, I'm trying, you know. And, uh, and they take that water all the way back to David. And they're like, hey, David, check this out. We got you some water. You know, David's like, I can't drink this, and he pours it out. (laughs) And part of it, you know, I, I was looking at that, I'm like, well, why do you do that? At least take the drink. Part of it was, you know, he didn't want a bunch of guys risking their lives to impress him, right, and getting killed. The three could do it. Probably nobody else could, right? That's how brave, courageous, and loyal these guys are. The three... Uh, you know, these are the three, but the author actually tells us of another famous man who's a part of the 30, and this last guy we'll look at today. And his name's Benaiah. Benaiah was the son of uh, Jehoiada, and uh, he was the son of a brave man from Kabziel, a man of many exploits. Benaiah, he killed two sons of Ariel of Moab, all right? So this guy's writing to a Jewish audience, uh, the author, and he's like, hey, another one of David's top guys is this guy named Benaiah. Alright, Beniah, he killed. Remember those two guys, those two warriors, they were super famous, they were champions, they were undefeated, you know, never been beat from, from Moab. Moab had two, they were brothers. Right? They were known throughout that land of being, of being great warriors. He's like Benaiah, he killed them both. Right, he took care of them. Right, they were enemies of Israel. And, and and he he took them both, he took them both down. Two famous uh, warriors from Moab, the same place where Ruth was from, same, same country. Right? He says, also, Beniah. he went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. Right? Put that on your resume. If I, have done, if I would have done that or if I would ever, you know, do that, I'm definitely putting that on my resume. Uh, but uh, but he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, I know I, I know we probably got some people who are like, wait, what? He killed a cat? You know, you got your cats at home and, um, you know, you're just thinking, you're like, oh, why, why would he do that? But if you think about it just rationally, there's a lion in a pit. It's not like you're letting the thing out, okay, because they kill you, okay? That's, we don't know that because we don't live near lions. But, you know, it's not something that you want to do. You don't, also probably don't want to just uh, die in there either. Or, well, you don't want it to just starve to death anyway. So you know, killing it might be the most merciful thing that you could do. Anyway, moving on. That's just for you just to chew about if that's what you're into. But, uh, but check, check out what he does, right? He goes down into the pit. If I were Benaiah, I'd be like, hey, give me that bow and arrow, I'll take this thing out. He doesn't do that. He's like, give me my knife. I'm going to go down and I'm going to take out that lion. Okay? This guy was brave. This guy, this guy was courageous. Right? He went down and he took care of business. He killed a lion on a snowy day. The author, you know, puts that in there just so, just so we know it's like slippery and there's snow on the ground and, and he goes and does this. Another thing that we know about him is the author tells us that he also killed an Egyptian. An impressive man. Again, we got some details from First Chronicles that we have that weren't in uh, Second Samuel. We know that this guy was seven and a half feet tall. Right? this is a big dude. He is a he is a warrior. Even though the Egyptian had a spear, a huge spear, uh, Chronicles says, in his hand. This is benign. He went down to him. He went to him. He didn't wait for the Egyptian come come to him. He went to the Egyptian with a staff, or really, it's more like a club, and he snatched a spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and then he killed him with his own spear. Says these were the exploits of Benaiah, who had a reputation among the three warriors. See, Benaiah, we know, was one of David's best friends, top guys. He was famous. All right, by the way, he was famous not for his TikToks or his Facebook posts or, or social media or having a lot of money, like all the things that people are famous for these days, having a lot of money, being a good singer, being a good actor, all right, being great at sports. No, this guy was literally known for being a man, right? That's his reputation. And I think God gives us this tiny bit of information about this one man. Like we know more about Benaiah than we know about the three, but God gives us this tiny bit of information about this one man, really, as an example to us for men and women about what a man should look like: bold, courageous, loyal, protecting those that he loves, not afraid of responsibility, right? Not afraid of a little risk. He's not still living in his mom's basement, putting in minimal work, you know, or minimal effort at work and mastering hobbies. Okay, it's not what he's doing. I mean, this guy was one of the most manliest men maybe to have ever walked the planet. But check this out in this last verse. He says, he was the most honored of the 30, right? He was known. He had famous. Everybody, everybody in Israel knew who Beniah was, but he did not become. And some translations actually use the word attain, which I think is a little bit better. But he did not become or attain to one of the three. Think about what this guy did. I mean, again, we know more about him than the three. And he, this guy, he was brave. He had done all this stuff. He had you know, killed the two warriors of Moab. He killed a lion on a snowy day. He had killed a, the Egyptian warriors or warrior. He was most famous of the 30, but he still was not good enough to become one of the three. Isn't that interesting? We don't know why. Hey, God doesn't give us a bunch of information on it. But it really shows us, I think, that no matter how manly that we think we are, no matter how brave or courageous that, you know, or, or how much courage that we think we have, or, or doesn't matter how protective that we think we are with our family and for those that we care about, there's always, always, always room for us to grow. There's always another level for us to attain to, or for us to become. And honestly, I think that's the biggest problem for us as men. I honestly don't think that women struggle with this as much because I think men um, I think when we reach a certain level whether that's in our personality or professionally or financially or relationally or or spiritually whatever that might be right I think a lot of times what we we reach a certain level that we're comfortable with and then we stop trying to reach the next level we just quit I think a lot of is, I think a lot of it is cuz we're lazy all right I think we're selfish, we want what we want, we just want to stop working because it takes work. And when that, happened, this, when that happens, it's the moment-to-moment things that we let slide in our life. See, we got these examples that, that God gives us here. We got the 30, we got Benaiah, we got the three. All of these guys started off as outcasts, as nobodies, nothing that anybody wanted to be associated with. Didn't start off well for them. But look how they finished. Look at the picture that the Bible paints of them. These guys finished as men. Standing up for what's right. Standing up for their families. And standing up for God. That's a great example, such a great example of how we need to act and how we need to be as men in here. Let's, let's pray. God, we... Uh, we thank you for loving us and we thank you for caring about us and thank you for this story that you've given us. Um, God, we ask and we beg you as men that you would help us become the man that you want us to be. And those men in our lives, God, help us to, as parents, help us to raise men, help us to encourage men, God, help us to grow. You have given us so many examples, great examples for us. And God, we ask that, uh, that we would exemplify biblical manhood and biblical womanhood how you've shown us. And God, we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.